0: Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of New Books in Russian-Eurasian Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. In every podcast, I talk to an author about their new book on Russia or Eurasia. In this episode, I spoke with Meredith Roman, about her book, Opposing Jim Crow, African-Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928-1937. to 1937. I was really excited when I saw an ad for Meredith Roman's book on Soviet anti-racism and African-Americans. I knew she was working on race in Soviet Russia, and how Russians understand race, black experiences in Russia, and racism is a pet interest of mine. So I immediately contacted her for an interview. I wasn't disappointed. Meredith writes and speaks persuasively about the important role anti-racism played in the early Stalin years, and how it figured into the crafting of the new Soviet person. But perhaps more surprising for me was to realize how utterly novel the Soviet Union's anti-racist position was in the 1930s, and how this captured the imaginations of many African Americans. As one commentator summed up Langston Hughes' visit to the Soviet Union, there was no toilet paper, but there was also no Jim Crow. For more, here's my interview with Meredith Roman. Hi, Meredith. Hi, Sean. Welcome to New Books in Russian Eurasian Studies. Thank you. Thanks for joining me to talk about your book, Opposing Jim Crow, African Americans and the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928 to 1937.
1: Well, thanks so much for having me. Oh, <laughs> of
0: course. It's a very interesting book and a, and a great topic. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to see I didn't know that you were a student of Luca, Louis Siegelbaum's, so...
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I, he might have put you on to me, actually. He's, oh. He, he's good at doing that. <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I, saw him last, I saw him at the conference last week, so it was nice okay. to catch up with him. So, But anyways, to start the interview, why don't you um, tell me a bit about yourself and, and how you came to write this book?
1: Okay. Uh, I think the the real key part of, of this book is uh, working with Louis Siegelbaum at Michigan State University first... Uh, looking at uh, discrimination against non-Russians in Moscow since the fall of communism, which I did my thesis work on, and uh, his support of that, because initially uh, I didn't know what to do my thesis on, and and that sort of came out of a seminar paper uh, that I was working on with a French historian, and he really liked it and supported my idea to turn it into a master's thesis. And uh, convinced me to stay on to do the PhD there because he was really interested in my work and and wanted to see it continue, wanted to sort of support this angle of using the lens of race to look at uh, Soviet history or post-Soviet history.
0: And it's a topic that really is only starting to be worked on now.
1: Right. So it was it was key to have his support. That was that was crucial because I did get uh, somewhat of a resistance or somewhat of raised eyebrows from other people in the field. So his his support was was so critical and then i was also really fortunate to be part of the comparative black history program that then existed at michigan state under uh, the auspices of darlene clarkine who's an african american women's historian and so she had students there who were looking at all different types of uh... or all different parts of the african diaspora and so, working with them and interacting with them sort of further reinforced my ideas of of getting on, getting into this topic. And I I did initially consider turning in the you know sort of the racism of uh, the post-Soviet period as part of my dissertation. But then I was, it did it wasn't didn't make sense. First of all, it wasn't practical. Uh, it wasn't safe, <laughs> and it wasn't historical enough. So I decided to to then really look, go back to. Uh, looking at what type of image the Soviet Union had in the 20s and 30s, uh, how they built it, why they built it, and what role African Americans had in building this image of an anti-racist society. So that's how I sort of got in a roundabout way into uh, sort of comparative African American and Soviet history.
0: Well, let's begin by talking about some a bit of conceptual issues, um, particularly what does speaking anti-racism mean? And how does it relate to Stephen Kotkin's concept of speaking Bolshevik? Because you make a, a relationship between these two issues.
1: Right. It means it, it's it's very much derived from, from Kotkin's work in Magnetic Mountain, which was was sort of really formative in, in terms of helping me to conceptualize uh, Soviet anti-racism and the enterprise of indicting racism. So, in essence, I... It was an. It was a feature of being Soviet that that was also a, a feature of, of Soviet identity. Was this? Ideally, you were supposed to be able to have knowledge of sort of the plight of African Americans and sort of the racial discrimination that was going on in the United States, and be able to speak somewhat competently about it, uh, and and of course express outrage at it. Uh, so, in in that sense, it's very much derived from his his. Uh, his use of the term speaking bolshevik uh... but i also sort of play with the idea throughout the study and i've i've sort of uh... got a lot of help at conferences from feedback especially from from russians uh... who are now historians of the soviet union with regard to the fact that a lot of people even though they were speaking anti-racism especially in the twenties and thirties didn't necessarily mean that it was false or superficial sure it was something that that was supported by the state but at the same time there was also there wasn't. It wasn't necessarily inauthentic either, and I saw that was sort of something I struggled with writing the book and, and presenting my work. That I I never wanted to state that it was completely inauthentic, but I never wanted to say that it was always completely authentic either. I think there's there's it's somewhere in between. There's a middle ground there that sort of makes makes sense and uh, and makes it speaking anti-racism, but not necessarily without um, that the air of superficiality, or that was just propaganda, or it was just people were compelled to do it. So that's, uh, that's how I conceive of speaking anti-racism. And then, of course, uh, the fact that African Americans were speaking Soviet anti-racism, I think is also important to note, because that was, that was one of the reasons why they became involved in that, one of the reasons they became involved in the Soviet indictment of anti-racism, because it was also key to what many of them conceived as their struggle uh, to gain liberation in the United States and for African peoples around the world. So uh, I thought it was also important and interesting to show that that this discourse that was very Soviet was also adopted and sort of African-Americanized, if you will, um, by African-Americans interested in the Soviet experiment.
0: Yeah, I think that's one of the big strengths of the book is that um, the African-Americans – though a very small minority in the Soviet Union and also some in the United States are, are using or adopting this rhetoric and deploying in a variety of ways. But we'll get to that later in the interview because okay. that's, that's sure. something definitely worth talking about. But first, um, because the Soviets presented themselves as first anti-racist and, and to some sense anti-race, mm-hmm. right? I think this is right. an important thing. Uh, what were their attitudes to race, racism, and anti-racism in the 1920s and 30s, and, and why did they focus on African Americans rather than say Africans under you know colonial domination, and, uh, French and, and British colonial domination, or even other races?
1: Right. Well, I, I, there was in the 20s and 30s there was, I think a, a you know there was a great um, there was a great interest in African Americans. On on one level, because they were Americans, so there was always this fascination with, or or a consistent fascination with with the United States. So uh, African Americans being associated with with America and being American distinguished them from Africans, and I think that plays a key role in helping to explain why they get very different treatment. Also, uh, I think because uh, the United States, at least until 1933, was... Essentially, um, not not there were there were no diplomatic rec- uh, there was no diplomatic relations with the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union had no diplomatic relations with the United States that that helped to make them even more interested in African Americans because they could then use them and sort of uh, look uh, to expose this notion of the United States as being this land of democracy and this land of freedom uh, by using those. People whom American democracy despised and, and discriminated against. So I think that was a key role in in also selecting African Americans. And African Americans were interested in in developing that relationship as well. So there was there was a desire on the part of African Americans as well to sort of forge this alliance. And of course, this changes after the Second World War, where when there is greater interest in the African uh, continent. But but. During the 1920s and 1930s, you know, America, the United States, is seen as the capitalist country, the sort of imperial country that must be, uh, you know, sort of that that we must uh, be guarded against or be on our guard against. So that makes African Americans very interest, very sort of key in at least identifying them as allies in resisting this supposed imperialist war that the United States was plotting. So that's why even in some of the chapters, I. I emphasize the connection that is drawn between the increased violence against African-Americans, and that's, sort of framed as meaning that the U.S. imperialists are, are, you know, sort of getting closer to wage war against the the Soviet Union uh, because they're attacking our allies. And in essence, the fifth column within the the United States, uh, they're attacking them. So that means they're getting ready to attack us. I think African-Americans were an ideal and sort of a really perfect way of embarrassing and exposing the United States for all its racial problems, uh, especially given the the sort of air of of superiority that they they claim to hold, and that also, especially around the five-year plan from 1928 to 1932, when uh, the Soviet Union is admitting, or Soviet leaders are admitting the country's industrial inferiority, they want to claim a a moral superiority, and African Americans and sort of attacking racism is a key way of, of gaining that sort of sense of moral superiority.
0: You know, I, I was going to say, I guess it makes, also makes sense that America is kind of a prime target because it becomes a great power in the post-World War I, um conjecture. So they become the kind of light of democracy more than, say, Europe. Right. And you look at a number of case studies of um, how anti-racism is formed, and the first one you talk about is the trial of, um, I'll probably slaughter his name, but Lumiel, Lumiel Lewis and William Brown, who right. are two mm-hmm. white Americans... Right. Who assaults a uh, African American named Robert Robinson in Stalingrad in nineteen in July nineteen thirty? Um, why is this trial significant? A significant turning point in Soviet anti racism.
1: I think it's significant because it's really the first time that we see, uh, especially in the press and and with regard to a specific trade union, where there's an all all out sort of campaign to attack American racism and to. Uh, embrace an African-American who's in the country as as our brother. So prior to this, of course, you know, in the 1920s, there were articles about American racism, but not to the same degree as what occurs once, once this attack occurs uh, and once the trade unions, the essential trade unions get involved, and especially uh, in particular the metal workers union. So then there's, there's, there's this effort to not only report on American racism, uh, and in the press for this, the entire month when you know the, the attack was exposed, and then the the trial was organized, for about a month, steadily in the central press, you had articles about American racism, about Robert Robinson, and about showing Soviet uh, people, citizens, and even foreign workers who were in the country as as outraged at this this grave injustice that had occurred, and so that's really the first time we we get a sense of that there's. There's commitment to this, and that it's become a bit of it's become a greater priority on the part of of the, of the Soviet state to attack racism and to demonstrate that black people, and especially black people from the United States, are welcome here. So that's in essence why I think it's very significant. And was it was a great you know it was a great propaganda tool. I mean, it ha- how you know it really worked out well for their for their benefit. I mean, it couldn't have worked out better. It seems in terms of of having this incident happen um, and a lot of times it was reported inaccurately but that didn't matter i mean there there was the various points of that he was thrown out of the cafeteria and there was you know there were various versions of it but all but all in all the same the the underlying premise was the same that these white americans are racist and they attacked him and they didn't they thought they were going to get away with it and we must we must shame them we must condemn them and get rid of them because we don't accept racism i mean that, that's that's great theater right there mm-hmm,
0: exactly and and as you say the the larger point is to tell other foreigners in the soviet union that whatever racist baggage that they bring to the soviet soil it's not welcome here
1: right exactly and because there are a large number or a fairly large number of of uh, at least foreign workers in the united states or in the soviet union at the time so from you know from the u.s and from germany and from other uh, western european countries so it was also sending it was definitely sending a clear message to them as well
0: now as far as uh, robert robinson's fate i mean he he becomes a bit of a celebrity and, and as you say repeatedly a soviet poster child for anti-racism uh what happens to him after this trial
1: um, he continues to work a few more years at the at the Stalingrad Tractor Factory where the incident occurred. Uh, and then he's he's transferred to Moscow, um, the um, uh, ball-bearing plant. He becomes a worker there, and that's where he spends most of his life. At, and that's where, of course, he's then elected to the Moscow City Soviet by his co-workers uh, in December of 1934 and begins to serve in 1935. And that's when uh, he's confronted by the... Uh, the U.S. Embassy with regard to, you know, serving in a, in a position in the Soviet Union, and that's when he surrenders his U.S. citizenship, which is a really key or fateful decision on his part because he wants to, he wants, he doesn't necessarily want to, at least how he presents it, he doesn't want to be involved politically, but he does want to become an engineer, he wants the education, he wants the advancement, and that's, thus far he was doing very well in that regard. Uh, so he surrenders that, and that makes him, in essence, as he describes it, a prisoner of, you know, the Soviet Union until uh, the early 1970s. Uh, and what's interesting about his his uh, autobiography that he goes on to write, uh, which presumably is funded by a company that is associated with the CIA, uh, the, the account is completely uh, slamming the, the Soviet Union and, and declaring it to be racist and, and all this. But what's really interesting is that even when he's describing the incident in Stalingrad in 1930, uh, and which is very consistent with what was ri- written in Pravda especially uh in 1930 but what's really really quite intriguing is that uh even though he's writing this account to to uh slam the so- the Soviet Union he even he admits that after the trial he experiences he writes this passage where he he, exp- he he explains that he experiences freedom for the first time like being able to breathe freely and and think freely and not worrying about anyone attacking him or or, or um Saying anything about him the the sort of freedom to feel physically safe and secure that was key and and so here we have i don't know if he realized he put this in here right or if if the publisher realized he put it in there, but it, in essence, it sort of complicates the story it, of course, you know obviously there's problems with racism in the Soviet Union to be sure uh, and and a lot of the rhetoric was was rhetoric, but there was also something. There were also some positive results of that rhetoric and that, these campaigns. And he even admits as much to that uh, his, in his autobiography.
0: That's really interesting. that, uh, that And I've seen this in, in other contexts of these memoirs where they're clearly anti-Soviet. Mm-hmm. But even within the rhetoric of being anti-Soviet, you get these strange other issues that come out that right. th- below the surface of the main kind of thesis. And I, sure. I, it's, it's really interesting to hear that even in his case, you get that also.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's quite remarkable, <laughs> and and shows just how how the psychological impact that Soviet anti-racism had on African American people. I mean, that that's I think you know the real key. It, it did have, it wasn't just for naught. It did have some some key um, results or consequences.
0: Now, now you note that um, that coverage of of American racial oppression substantially increases in the Soviet press. Particularly in the first half of the 1930 s, where you say they take a, a strong line or a hard line on on, on racism, um how did they how did the Soviet press portray the plight of African Americans, and what themes did they they focus on?
1: um They focused primarily on lynching, which was an easy theme and and really you know american American policy and and allowance of of lynching essentially made them an easy target. So lynching was a was a key theme, and lynching lynching was actually increasing as the Soviet press reported in the late 1920s and early 30s. It was increasing in number compared to the the early 20s and, and mid uh, early mid 1920s. So they were correct in that, and and oftentimes were accurate in terms of what they were writing. Uh, but of course, they they also portrayed the increased lynching of African Americans as related to again this imperialist war that the United States was going to to wage against the Soviet Union. So the more number of black men lynched, or, and of course they were all made out to be black male workers, no matter what the case may have been. Right,
0: and even uh, in some cases revolutionaries of some right, sort. Right, exactly.
1: Right, uh, it, we're, we're militating, you know, with uh, with. Uh, with unions or you know going on strikes or whatever when when that part of it was was definitely often fabricated to to again make them seem like these are our allies and they're being attacked so we are going to be attacked soon Uh, there was also a lot of emphasis on police brutality imprisonment um, poverty and of course a lot of this this coverage in essence Portrays African Americans in the end, it sort of dehumanizes them because it makes them seem like they were only poor and downtrodden and, right. and victims of uh, violent oppression. So a lot of times, African Americans who then go to travel to the Soviet to the Soviet Union, you know, throughout its its existence, are then sort of met with shock by some some Soviet citizens who are like, "Wait, you have nice clothes and and you're not poor and and you were educated." And so so that coverage over time over the decades so this is even beyond the 30s, um, helps to, it's, it's, it's effective in one sense that it's providing coverage of uh, gross human rights violations that are occurring in the United States, but at the same time, it's also dehumanizing those who are, who are the victims of it.
0: Yeah, I kind of, one of the themes that I noticed in your book and in, in other studies of uh, particularly African, African Americans in the Soviet Union, even the anti-racist rhetoric was to some extent rooted in kind of a racist lens. Right, In this Absolutely. sense of painting based on stereotypes of of, of blacks and black culture. Um, I have actually a question. How did the Soviet press um, get these stories? Did they have cor- – they didn't have correspondence or did they just call, kind of go through Western or American press reports and then construct articles from that? Do you They were going,
1: through, Yeah, they were going through Western um, uh, reports and they were also um, – using information garnered from, um, Western journalists (laughs) who, who essentially had, who were in Moscow, um, and who were a bit more on the radical, you know, side, or the radical leanings, and, uh, and African Americans themselves, who would, who were there and, and would bring, um, bring news and, and bring, uh, bring coverage of what was, what was occurring. And that was, and you can tell actually when African-Americans have, have the most input because then it is actually more accurate and it's not as stereotyped and it's not as, um, I guess, uh, stylized, if you will. There's, there's a bit more, um, reality to it, but even just like the photographs that they were, that they were receiving, um, those were printed oftentimes with very minimal information or details it was just sort of the the shock factor and the idea to sort of imprint in in the minds of the people this idea of america as a place of of racial chaos and and hatred and violence Uh, and i think the the daily worker and the american communist party uh... also played a role in sort of conveying information sometimes the information was taken from the daily worker so, uh, articles or photographs that appeared there, which of course you know a lot of the, the things that they were reporting never appeared in the New York Times uh, so it it was sort of a, a more um, it was it was through the the common connections and um, the u s Communist Party in particular that they were also getting information.
0: yeah, I never actually thought about the way the Comintern and then of course foreign communist parties act as a as a filter of, of sorts for how the Soviet Union perceives the outside world, and communist movement within it.
1: Right, no, and it's key, I mean, I think this is a way we often see, um, at one point I I had gotten some feedback about my work, and that, you know, all this was just the, you know, sort of, uh, this was just the concern of the the Comintern, it had nothing to do with the Soviet Union per se, and I, I think something the book I tried to do is, is to show that the Comintern policies were in some ways, not always, but in some ways, infect, infecting Soviet society or affecting Soviet society. And especially during this period, at least, you know, the, the militant third period, that some of its ideas and rhetoric were um, very much made part of what was supposed to be Soviet identity in the Soviet space.
0: That's that's actually quite interesting, this kind of transmission Right. Uh, that you show. Um now, as you mentioned before, and, and highlighting the racism in the United States, the Soviet Union wanted to portray itself as a morally superior, raceless society, which is interesting considering its multi-ethnicity. Um but what role did the images and art and literary representations of African Americans play in this kind of promotion of the Soviet's moral superiority?
1: I think it was I think it was key in in terms of uh at least trying to uh familiarize soviet citizens with um the idea that these people are our brothers and sisters or it's mostly brothers because there are very few african american women um but at least uh, exposing them to these ideas i don't think i think had had positive effects uh and even some of the the racist cartoons that i that i argue are also sort of included with anti-racist stories, which which seem on the surface very contradictory, and they are very contradictory, and, and often very frustrating, not only for the, the African American protagonists who who are in the book, but also for me as a writer, sort of being frustrated with the the limits of sort of Soviet anti-racism. But in some ways, I think they were trying to say that although these people might seem a bit different to us and, and curious because we're not used to being around black people, they uh, that they are our friends. They are civilized. They're more civilized than white people in America, and we have a lot in common with them. They're hardworking. They're honest. <laughs> you know, they're um, they're people. They're they're genuine people. So even though they might appear strange, that and grotesque as some of the images show, um, they are you know they are real people. So I think that the their presentation in terms of of uh, presenting African Americans as being embraced. I think gave sense or gave rise to a sense of of community and openness, um, and I, that might seem idealistic, but I think a lot of us who study the twenties and thirties study it because there was still this idealism. Right. <laughs> <It's so exciting. laughs> I think that's why there's so many of us. <laughs> it, it wasn't all it wasn't all skepticism and cynic, you know cynicism in the twenties and thirties. There was there was real hope there, and so I think I think it was. Uh, I think it was key, and and it certainly served as a, a stark contrast to the images that were being shown of African Americans in the United States. I mean, you know, to show to show uh, you know uh, images of of lynchings, and then to show um, black and white uh, men, you know, uh, standing arm in arm. I think that's there's there's something there. There's something there greater than just uh, the superficiality or the inauthenticity. Uh, it's sh- and I think it that's something that African-Americans appreciated because it showed that there were, you know, there was hope for white people. You right. know? um And although Russians were never, all, ever, never seen by white people themselves as completely white by black people, they were seen as white people. So um, there was hope there. So there was hope on, on a lot of ends. So I think, I think that, that key, those, those represent, representations were very key in, in terms of the, the uh, effect and, and overall impact of, the Soviet anti-racist campaign.
0: Yeah, you say, actually repeat the idea that all of this is very male. It's a very masculine representation right. of African-American men. The contact with African-Americans and Africans too is mostly men. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting to think about how in the Soviet case, African-American men are kind of portrayed as very masculine as mm-hmm. opposed to right. the the American picture of African-American men is actually a demasculinization to a, lot, a large extent, did the Soviets? Do you get any indication or have an interpretation of how they dealt with black male masculinity because it's such a big issue in mm-hmm. racist ideology in the United States? Do you get a sense of uh, being dealt with in, in the Soviet case?
1: You know, it's interesting. I think it's 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 very curious to me that um, they were presenting these these images of strong black men and not sort of being threatened by them um, and even countless accounts, I mean, or numerous, I shouldn't say countless, but numerous accounts that I've come upon have even claimed that whether they are, are written by Soviet citizens or they're written by, or these accounts are coming from African Americans, they even claim that uh, when women uh, would, what you know, Russian women would dance with or sort of associate with African American men, that there wasn't any backlash there that there wasn't any hostility or antagonism which is really quite remarkable and I still can't really wrap my mind around how that could be and even african americans and again soviet accounts claim that the only hostility to their towards those relationships even if they were just casual um you know just hanging out and socializing rather than anything romantic that the hostility came from white american men and not not soviet men which I, I find difficult to believe, but that 's all that 's all I see in the sources um, that that there were since that was such a huge issue, uh, not only in the United States but obviously Germany, Western Europe, you know this threat this myth of the black rapist and all, all they were interested in raping white women and, and so uh, it it seems quite remarkable that that is sort of a main feature of black male mas- of black masculinity. Was not seen, in any case, not consistently as, as a threat. Uh, I, I really, Sean, I don't know how to <laughs> just, it's, it's quite – it boggles my mind. Now, that's, that's, not, that's not the case for after. I think there's more – you get more sense of um, hostility in the 40s and 50s. Yes, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, this is part of the reason why 30s, I asked.
1: It, I'm getting, I see nothing of that, mm-hmm. um, which is, again, really quite remarkable and strange, to be quite honest. Yeah,
0: I, I mean, I, I I, think I share the same view. I'm surprised to hear that. And first, I'm skeptical of it. But then Correct. again, I wonder, well, is this just my own kind of racist, American racist ideology that right. the, the you know black male sexuality is mm-hmm. always seen as kind of threatening?
1: Right. Um, and so
0: it's hard for me to believe that, well, this isn't translated in another context.
1: Right, right. <laughs> Well, and it's just, even the the biography uh, that was written um, by a Soviet author of Robert Robinson, one of the the ways that he claimed Robert Robinson was felt welcome during his his trip over to the Soviet Union on the boat was that um, the Russian men, you know, wanted him, you know, invited him to dance with their women, you know, and that, you know, I mean, that's quite just the the fact of of offering that as as an evidence of is sort of the Russian people's, uh, anti-racist attitudes or, you know, sort of the, the antithesis, how they represent the antithesis to, you know, white Americans attitudes towards black men in particular. I mean, that's remarkable. And so even if it's, again, even if it's not true to say that in 19 when he was writing this in 1935, 1936, as, you know, sort of a signifier of enlightenment on the part of Soviet people, that's pretty, that's pretty remarkable. Um, that's, right. That was even taken as a sign.
0: At, at least even in this case, even the novelty of having your uh, a black guy dance with your your white girlfriend is not seen as threatening.
1: Right, exactly. Is, is there's something
0: exactly. I think even important, even if they're seeing it as, you know, just, just kind of photo op, look at my, we have a picture or we have this experience. At, at least it, it the fact that it's not seen as a threat is, I think, somewhat significant.
1: Right. Well, and it, it, clearly it's being taught that, that you're not supposed to see it as a threat, right? Right, So. Right. That's the instruction. That's the message that's being taught. So that's, that's quite um, revolutionary for, for this era.
0: Certainly. Yeah, that is. That is. Um, now, the trial of the Scottsboro Boys in Alabama in 1931, which is, has its own very powerful history in the United States, you showed that it actually has an international history, and especially since it ignites a campaign in the USSR against their execution. And you write that the the campaign, which was directed by the Soviet uh, Committee for Saving the Nine Negroes, quote molded how to speak anti racism for the country's citizenry. Now, talk about this campaign and and how did it achieve this molding?
1: Well, it, it, achieved, it achieved it or attempted to achieve it in on multiple ways. I mean, there was a massive. Uh, press campaign so quite frequently through 31 and 32 there were images not only in propta and Asbestia, but more often um in Trude, which it was the trade union newspaper and uh Revolta gazeta which existed in 1931 there were there were tons of images and uh articles about the scottsboro boys or they weren't called obviously the scottsboro boys there uh the scottsboro 9 or the 9 negroes because they couldn't be boys since they had to be revolutionary fighters um so uh or revolutionary warriors, if you will. Uh, there were also rallies, uh, meetings held, or at least supposedly held, to some extent. Obviously, we can't prove the the extent to which these meetings were held. Um, but at least in major cities, there were banners, there were posters that that uh, we know, at least in Moscow and um, Leningrad, existed. Uh, so, in essence, the city landscapes. Uh, sort of papered with images of of the Nine or with you know, Free the Scottsboro Prisoners or scre- free, the, free the Scottsboro Defendants' banners posted on um, street corners or um, uh, in transportation, public buildings. So, And there were supposed to be uh, meetings and rallies held throughout the Soviet Union um, in all corners of the Soviet Union. So uh, in essence, I argue that it that this campaign was at least intended to personalize the experiences of american racism on the part of of african-americans and especially african-american men Uh, but at the same time as you say sort of teach people if they want to how to speak anti-racism so uh... if it's not reading the newspapers themselves it's listening to a lecture Um, it's uh, it's basically reading a, a cartoon reading a poster are at least at least being aware of the atrocities that are being committed, and I think that awareness you know sort of the notion of international education that international education will uh you know sort of erase all residues of capitalist education i e racist imperialist education and and will teach people that uh, what is right and what is wrong about uh, humanity in general that Black people are not inferior or white people are not superior, so I think I can't say that it that it necessarily that people actually articulated this on a daily basis, but i I would argue that they were aware of it uh, you know even the uh, children's journals had not necessarily images directly related to the Scottsboro case, but images that would deal with the persecution and victimization of african-americans at the hands of violent mobs or or uh... whether it be at the hands of a court system or or uh... you know mobs that, that from an early age if it was there whether you bought into it or not i you know i can't make that argument but at least i would argue it dominated the field of discourse. it was and if you wanted of course to be part of the system and move up in the system you could access that language learn that language very easily and therefore, um, basically, prove your Soviet to Sovietness, and I, that's why the, the sort of quotation from Khrushchev when he's speaking,
0: right, which is a wonderful story,
1: <laughs> right. I mean, it's it's uh, and Louis Siegelbaum actually uh, put me onto that because he was he was reading the biography of of that wonderful biography of Khrushchev, and he said, "This is a great piece. You need to to incorporate this." And of course, it was a fabulous anecdote and something that really helped to prove that he had been learning he Khrushchev, and others have been learning since the the early 1930s how to speak anti-racism it wasn't something that happened overnight
0: yeah I think it's important that it, it at the least it provided a rhetorical form to speak about something that had no language right it gave the citizens the tools to to at least participate in this kind of you know, national conversation and international conversation about race that didn't necessarily exist in a kind of popular, accessible form.
1: Absolutely. No, and and was not sort of the, the thing to do. or wasn't the fad. It wasn't fashionable in the 20s and 30s to be doing this. And I, again, I think that's why African-Americans who did encounter Soviet citizens were impressed. You know, these are white people who are trying to make an effort. Yeah, <laughs> you know? exactly. It might, might be superficial. There might be some propaganda behind it, but at least they're making an effort. Um, and, you know, I think they would have liked the, the propaganda to exist in the United States if that meant, you know, security and, and some level of a greater level of equality.
0: Especially if you contrast this with Ilf and Petrov's kind of discussion with one of their white hitchhikers about right, race exactly. in America and how he just doesn't even care.
1: Right. Exactly. It's just
0: the way it is. So it, it does show even here on the question of moral superiority, the fact that Soviet citizens speak the language
1: Right, and, and, and all the, the accounts of African Americans that, uh, that we have access to and, and speak to the fact how, how impressed they were by just casual conversations with, with Soviet citizens who expressed an interest in and had so much knowledge of, of American racism that they were shocked by that and that they were somewhat interested in it. it, wasn't, it, was, it was, there was a curiosity there that white America did not have <laughs> or did not care.
0: Um, Now, I think one of the most interesting things, and and you alluded to this earlier in the interview, is the fact that this anti-Soviet rhetoric or language was actuated among African Americans themselves. They adopted this. Um, How did African Americans utilize this Soviet discourse of anti-racism publicly and also privately?
1: Well, I think, uh, I think George Padmore, you know, sort of the, the guy who becomes the pan-African radical and staunch anti-communist, really helps to, to uh, symbolize, you know, sort of just how, how important some African-Americans believe that this image of the Soviet Union as an anti-racist society was. Uh, you sort of can't measure what the, the consequences were, were or are, or the impact of it was, but they clearly believed it had some value um intangible it, although it was intangible it was it was something that they saw as as a challenge to us officials and and americans so even though uh someone like george padmore who's expelled from the Comintern by 1934 and becomes a staunch anti-communist he still he he's condemning the soviet union for you know its violation of civil rights and political rights and sort of just saying how communism is is evil and all this but at the same time he's he's claiming that but they are, they have discovered the cure for racism and and we know that padmore had some some uh some sense of racism that did exist in the Soviet Union. And he was aware of sort of racist caricatures that continued to coexist with Soviet anti-racist rhetoric. But it seems that he found he found no reason to bring those issues up because it would then tarnish that image of the Soviet Union as this raceless society and would not be as an effective challenge to U.S. leaders to make some changes uh, with regard to American racial policy. And, and even the the African American press of the 1920s and 1930s, they they recycled this this image. They spoke Soviet anti racism quite frequently, even though they had no contact with the commenter, you know had had really an antagonistic relationship with the CPUSA, uh, and were staunchly overall anti communist. They they still projected this image of the Soviet Union as being this land of, of opportunity for African Americans, uh, where they could be accepted and, and excel and succeed. So I, I would argue that that gave African Americans hope, you know, that there, were, that there could be change. Uh, and it also, again, served as a challenge that this is the society we want. I mean, even their, their uh, love of Pushkin Right? Uh, and all the these stories dealing with Pushkin I mean how could we not read that as their desire to have African- American writers be celebrated as American writers not African- American writers in the way that Pushkin uh, they portrayed as being embraced by Russian people not you know as a Russian writer uh, not as as an someone of African descent who wrote in Russia so that they clearly wanted some elements of what they had, Imagine the Soviet Union to be or were projecting the Soviet union to be to to make remake u s society in that image, so not necessarily the the economic factors they really didn 't touch those issues, but with regard to race uh, the ability to have education regardless of race and the ability to marry regardless of race, the ability to to succeed without being limited by race that was that was something that they they wanted and celebrated the uh, part as as existing in soviet society.
0: Yeah, I can I mean, imagine that you know we we can't really underestimate the power of this considering that United States race relations are at, at a real low, I mean, and and if you look across Europe, I mean, race racism um, fascism is on the rise and here is a here is a power that's officially preaching an anti-racist position and advocating for it. I, I can imagine the attraction of this being being quite great.
1: Uh, yeah, I mean I you really can't you can't even measure it. I, it's 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 incomprehensible I think the the true psychological impact um that all this was was ha- had on African Americans uh who, who would who are considering the idea of of the Soviet Union. Uh I think I think that is that is something that we can't well we obviously can't quantify and and uh I don't think we really understand the true importance of it of just how uh how key the, the the idea of the Soviet Union as this raceless society was.
0: Well, in the interest of time, I'm going to jump ahead and um, ask you about the fact that in the second half of the 30s, the Soviet Union seems to take a softer line. Mm-hmm. So, first question is, what, what is the fate of, of anti-racism in the second half of the 1930s? But the second question is, what are the legacies of this um, on Russian views of race? And, racism and their understanding of the United States, because I don't know if you know, but the um, Russian government came out with a kind of human rights report about the United States a couple of weeks ago.
1: Oh, and no, the, I didn't hear that. <laughs> yeah, and
0: one of the things they highlighted is the persistence of, you know, Ku Klux Klan racial injustice in the United States. So this to me, you know, not only does it speak to reality, it does, but it it the fact that they utilize this discourse made me think about, you know, this discourse in the Soviet period.
1: Sure. No, that's, I have to look into that. That's, that, that is quite fascinating. The fate of it was that it, it, it appeared sporadically after, you know, after the late, ni- uh, in the late 1930s. Uh, so you, you didn't necessarily get a complete silencing of anti-racist rhetoric, but it certainly disappears from the press in the way it had existed in the 1930s. You don't get any more, uh, education campaigns and if racism or political education campaigns and if if racism is mentioned uh, in the united states if an article does appear about it it's not there's not this effort to betray soviet society as outraged by it there's 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 none of that uh so the emphasis on even showing uh outrage on the part of its citizens becomes uh is no longer a priority what what does become of course the priority is Nazi Germany, and Nazi Germany becomes for obvious reasons portrayed as the most racist society, so and even lynching is still spoken of sometimes in in articles dealing with racial discrimination as a whole, but it's it's almost treated as if, as if well, we already know about that, so we don 't need to pay any attention to it uh, so in essence it it becomes deprioritized it becomes again. Uh, obviously, a priority after the Second World War in terms of uh, its relationship with the with the United States. But then it, it still has different features because no longer are African Americans sort of the only uh, faces of of, Amer- of Soviet racial enlightenment. Now there's a greater effort to reach out to Asia and, and the continent of Africa. Uh, so African Americans are really not don't have the same cachet. Uh, in the Soviet in the Soviet press, at least, and American imperialism can be exposed throughout the world. It no longer has to be shown is existing only in the United States, or uh, because of the isolationist policies of the United States in the 20s and 30s, show, proving that the United States was an imperialist power. They focused on on violence against African Americans. Well, now that was no longer sort of a that wasn't necessary anymore. They could turn to any corner of the globe and and, and sort of uh, expose American imperialism, and and no longer are is racism against uh, African Americans shown to be the you know sort of first steps in an imperialist war. So there, there are friends, but it's not the same type of ally relationship that existed. And now you you get, in, after the Second World War, you get reports about American opposition to this. So, uh, so while there were sort of inklings of this in the 20s and 30s, it was always that the Soviet people were the ones outraged and that they were sort of providing a model for American, white Americans on how to react to racist ideologies and race, racial violence. Uh, so you don't, you don't get that anymore. Uh, you don't get that the Soviet Union or Soviet citizens are the only one who are outraged. Now you get a growing segment of U.S. society who are outraged and angered with the government. So now it's more an image of the growing unpopularity of U.S. policies among American people. So it's a very different... um, So it's still there. Obviously, it's very important. That's the the anti-racism, the Soviet anti-racism, I think we're all most familiar with growing up with the U.S. civil rights movement. But there is... um, it's different. It takes different uh, forms and manifestations. So I think uh, I think it has an important Soviet anti racism has an important legacy, uh, but I think it also feeds into uh, clearly it's still a tactic that the that um, Russian leaders can now use, and and clearly they were they were well versed in it enough uh, throughout the Soviet period to draw on that imagery and that rhetoric. But I I think unfortunately. Too much has also been forgotten uh, because of the rampant racism in, you know, in in the post-Soviet space, if you will. Uh, the fact that there's maybe even some resentment that they were fed Soviet anti-racist rhetoric for so long, so uh, there's no longer this this safety net that exists for people of color and even African Americans uh, when traveling throughout. Um, Post-Soviet Russia, uh, when traveling throughout the former capital of of Enlightenment, Moscow. Uh, so I think, I think, and unfortunately, the legacy of Soviet anti-racist rhetoric is is can be still used by the state. But I think, overall, with regard to society as a whole, uh, there hasn't there hasn't been its removal and sort of the, its association with with uh, the Soviet state hasn't necessarily had a, a lasting positive impact on people's attitudes uh, towards uh, African-Americans or peoples of African descent. And of course, the relationship with with people from the African continent were always, I would argue, different. So the racism there is much more, I, I would argue, has always been much more uh, obscene and, and uh, much greater than African-Americans. And I don't want I mean I don't feel comfortable talking in sort of these generalized terms because at the same time I know a lot of russian people who are very much uh sort of uh anti-racist if you will or have have not necessarily rejected that that legacy but continue to practice it but i think too often uh those people or sort of those viewpoints aren't the ones that that create a safe space for people of of color in in moscow
0: yeah i have i've encountered both um this kind of anti legacy of a soviet anti-racism of course the kind of virulent racism you see today and, and unfortunately i've encountered more of the latter than the former
1: right so yeah th- and I, this
0: is a tragic a, a tragic result tragic. Of, of the collapse of the soviet system
1: absolutely it's it's staggering um and, and really quite disturbing. <laughs> yeah, well, on
0: that, that happy note, um, <laughs> um, <You're right. laughs> just, just to wrap up the interview, what are you uh, working on now?
1: Um, I'm working on a project. I'm going into the late 60s and early 70s. I'm working on a project of comparative dissent. So I'm still keeping the, ag- uh, the angle of comparative african American and Soviet history. So I want to look at uh, human- Soviet human rights activists and compare them to uh, revolutionaries of the black power movement and look at both their their tactics, their ideologies, their goals, their values, and how U.S. authorities and how Soviet authorities responded to both. And quite, it could be surprisingly, or perhaps not surprisingly to some, uh, the tactics that were used to suppress both were quite similar. Uh, And there are, although there are obvious differences between Black Power activists and human rights activists in the Soviet Union, there are also some really salient similarities. Uh, And even with regard to press coverage, in many ways, the press coverage of of Black Power activists in the U.S. were much more effective (laughs) in terms of trying to discredit and delegitimize them as compared to. Soviet press reporting on um dissident activity when they did report on it yeah. uh, it was not as heartily believed uh, uh and was often rejected because it was obviously a state uh, controlled press whereas in the United States you see more people buying into what was being uh, reported about black power activists
0: yeah, and I think that 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 trend continues today. The American press is far more effective in in kind of delegitimizing dissent than mm-hmm. the Russian press, which tends Absolutely. to be quite crude and and kind of manufactured. Um Well, that's that sounds great. I I do you happen to are you possibly looking into if there's documents, archival materials on Angela Davis's visit to the Soviet Union?
1: Um I haven't I haven't gotten that far yet. Okay. Um, I'm just curious if there are. Yeah, I, I would. I mean, obviously, the the press coverage is there, uh, and even the, the sort of anecdotal personal memoir accounts are there. But so I I would assume there has to be, especially because very much like the the Scottsboro case, there were meetings held and letters sent. I mean, we have letters, you know, for example, at the Schomburg uh, Center for Research in Black Culture uh, in Harlem, there are letters that Angela Davis received from oh, wow. various Soviet citizens and groups throughout the Soviet Union. So I'm imagining that. I would imagine that there would be. There oh, that's interesting. Traces of that throughout Soviet archives.
0: Wow. Well, great, Then I, I I look forward to that. That that sounds wonderful. Oh, thanks wonderful. so much, John. All right. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's a, it's thank a you. very interesting topic, a very good book, and, and I'm glad that you, you and and others are are looking at the question of, of race because it really is an open field um, in terms of this, and the comparative is is nice too.
1: No, um, thank you. I appreciate that. I hope. I hope I'm lending some insight. (laughs) Yes.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: Yeah, thank you. Take care.
0: I've been speaking with Meredith Roman about her book, Opposing Jim Crow, African Americans in the Soviet Indictment of U.S. Racism, 1928 to 1937. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Once again, I'm Sean Gillery, your host for new books in Russian Eurasian Studies. If you're interested in hearing more interviews by the New Books Network, please go to newbooksnetwork.com. And until next time. Грязный пол когтями торонит, как по горлу поскребёт. От того-то знать не весел дом, в котором мы живём, над блапкочку повесить.
1: Денег всё не соберём.